residing deep within Happy Valley in central Pennsylvania. Here is your host, Michael Lanny. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Hunger for Hannibal podcast. I'm your host, Michael Lanick, and before we get into recapping the first episode of Season 1, I figured we may as well get into uh, talking about what the aim of this podcast is and uh, hopefully what I expect from you and what you expect from me. I, uh, I've i been listening to podcasts now for quite quite a number of years, and I always wanted to try my hand at, at doing a podcast, but... Uh, I don't know. I guess I wasn't quite sure if, if I thought I might be able to do it or do it justice. So uh, I guess that remains to be seen. But for now, let's just assume that uh, it's going to turn out well. Um, I decided to do a podcast on Hannibal because for for well, for one reason, it's quite early in the show's run. And I was really surprised and well, pleasantly surprised, really, at how good season one is. In fact, I think uh, the first epi- the first season of Hannibal is uh, one of the best seasons I've ever I've ever seen of, of any show, uh, maybe ever, and definitely in quite some time. Um, I definitely would put it up there in the upper echelon of of shows whose first season really is a, a high water mark, and. Um, because it's it's such a good show, and there's so many symbols, there's uh, themes um, that I, I want to talk about and explore. Uh, I just I just thought that this would be a perfect show to uh, give a podcast a shot. So, um, but anyway, this podcast is something that I think that if you're a fan of of Hannibal. You know, you might be able to get something additional out of it after you've watched the the latest episode. This could be a place you could go to a few days later and uh, maybe you know get some uh, theories and ideas that that you might not have yourself. And uh, that's hopefully what we'll do here. And if you've listened to Dissecting Dexter, if you've been a, a Dexter fan over the years, and you've uh, been listening to Gareth Watkins who is a good friend of mine, um, then this this is a podcast that's going to be a, very similar to what he does, and uh, which means it's mostly about listener feedback. Uh, when there's a new episode, I'll do my thing. I'll you know give my, my thoughts, my analysis of the, the latest episode, but really it's all about you, the listener. It's, it's about what you think, um, whether it be about... The current episode, a past episode, what be coming, what could be coming down down the pike for our characters and the story, and so that's pretty much it. it it's a pretty straightforward podcast. It's not going to be a lot of a lot of uh, frills, but um, I, I think that for the most part, people are pretty fine with that. I know I am. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into uh, the first episode. You're listening to the Hungry for Hannibal podcast. So we start the episode with a crime scene. We see police officers and forensics people milling about until the camera focuses on a man standing amid all the chaos. We don't know who he is or what he's doing there because he isn't dressed like someone working at a crime scene. This man turns out to be Will Graham. 
In a well-constructed scene, we see Will do what he does best, by stepping into the mind of a killer who did this terrible crime. Like windshield wiper blades wiping across a windshield, Will does the same thing, and we see yellow bars wiping across the scene, taking out policemen and the forensics people and everyone else as the scene is going in reverse until everything disappears and it's only Will and we see the crime take place as if he was the killer. We see Will calmly breaking into the home, shooting the husband and then the wife who is frantically attempting to contact Homeland Security. Will comes out of his trance and after checking the Homeland Security report realizes that the killer tapped the phone line to record the wife's voice after the security system had a false alarm a week earlier. The security team contacted the home to make sure everything was okay and then said that the killer was able to record what he needed. He then uses the recording to convince the caller everything is fine after he commits the murders. Now personally I thought this was really creative uh, of the killer. Um, I don't know how they came up with it, um, but I think it was it was pretty brilliant. If I'm gonna kill someone and uh, or get into their house to kill them, and they've got a security system, it's a it's a pretty cool way of doing it. Um, anyway, later at the FBI Academy, Will is approached by Special Agent Jack Crawford, as you will see in this scene. Mr. Graham. Special Agent Jack Crawford, I head the Behavioral Science Unit. We've met. Yes. We had a disagreement when we opened up the museum. I disagreed with what you named it. The uh, Evil Minds Research Museum. It's a little hammy. Jack? See, you've hitched your horse to a teaching post, and I also understand it's difficult for you to be social. Well, I'm just talking at them. I'm not listening to them. It's, it's not social. See? Where do you fall on the spectrum? My horse is hitched to a post that is closer to Asperger's and autistics than narcissists and sociopaths. But you can empathize with narcissists and sociopaths. I can empathize with anybody. It's less to do with a personality disorder than an active imagination. Um, can I borrow your imagination? Crawford asks Will for help in solving a case in which eight young women have been abducted from Minnesota campuses but no bodies were found. It turns out that all of the girls look similar, similar to one another after Crawford shows Will the board where both the pictures of the missing girls and the locations for where they live and where they were abducted. We see Will's mind spinning. He doesn't want to get involved with the case and tries to object half-heartedly, but we can already see he's becoming invested. He knows that all of the victims appear to be a smokescreen for the one girl or victim that really matters to the killer. They go to the parents' home of the latest victim, Elise Nichols. Elise was supposed to feed the cat while her parents were away for the weekend, and when Will asks if the cat had been acting strangely as though it hadn't been fed all weekend, the father says they hadn't noticed. This is alarm bells in Will's head, and he thinks that... Elise was abducted from the house because at some point he feels that she was home long enough to feed the cat. Now despite the police and her parents having been in and out of her room at various points all day, 
they find Elise's, Elise Nichols' body <clears throat> dead on her bed, with the killer somehow managing to get in, back into the home long enough to put her in her room. Now, how that happened, not really sure. I mean, um, could have come in through the bedroom window, but uh, that's, you know, not on the ground floor, so... We're not sure exactly how they got in, but they did, and so yeah, she says she's on on the on her bed. And um, to Will, it becomes quickly apparent that the killer must have returned the body uh, as a way of apologizing for what they had done, and as though they were trying to make it right as best they could. They find Deerantly residue in her wounds, and they think that Will thinks the killer was trying to heal her due to Deer Antler's property and healing, uh, healing properties. On the way home, Will finds a stray dog, and manages to bring it bring it home. It appears as though Will has an affinity to dogs and is exceptionally calm in their presence. And I found this to be really. Um, a nice window into into Will. He has a, a real trouble with connecting with other people, but um, with dogs and and I think he has like six or seven. You know, to them or to Will, he, they really um, bond and connect. Maybe in a way that he simply can't with uh, another human being. Um. So anyway, the next day, Will and Jack get into a heated discussion. Will thinks the killer loves one of the girls and is, and in turn loves the other girls that he's killing. So in a sense, we have a uh, sensitive psychopath, and you can tell that Jack is stunned and can't quite believe that that Will is actually tossing this theory out, but but he is. And so then, upon further examination of Elise Nichols' body, they find uh, fine metal shavings, what appear to possibly come from a construction site. So then we jump right into the next scene where a girl pulls up in a, in a car, she gets out, um, she looks similar to the other girls that have been abducted and, and uh, supposedly killed, and um, she waves to someone. End scene. So going into the next scene, this is where we meet Alana Bloom. And uh, so I'll let you uh, listen to this scene and uh, we'll continue after. Graham likes you. Doesn't think you'll run any mind games on him. I don't. I'm as honest with him as I'd be with a patient. You've been observing him while you've been guest lecturing here at the Academy, yes? I've never been in a room alone with Will. Why not? Because I want to be his friend, and I am. Oh, it seems a shame not to take advantage, and academically speaking. You already asked me to do a study on him, Jack. I said no. Anything scholarly on Will Graham would have to be published posthumously. So, you've never been alone with him because you have a professional curiosity about him? Normally, I wouldn't even broach this. But what do you think one of Will's strongest drives is? Fear. Mm -hmm. Will Graham deals with huge amounts of fear. It comes with his imagination. It's the price of imagination. Alana, I wouldn't put him out there if I didn't think I could cover him. All right, if I didn't think I could cover him 80%. I wouldn't put him out there. He's out there. I need him out there. Should he get too close, I need you to make sure he's not out there alone. 
promise me something, Jack. Don't let him get too close. He won't get too close. Now, with this uh, scene we just watched, you you get some subtle you get some subtle things from um, both Jack and Alana. With uh, Alana, you get the sense that she has feelings for Will. She doesn't outright you know um, say it, or there's nothing that is is over the top um, in trying to show that she has feelings. But you can tell that Jack knows that that she probably has feelings for Will. He seems to to hint at it quite a bit, and Jack also reaffirms just how desperate he is. Um, to have Will on this case and just help solve it because um, he, he says in the scene, he says, I, I need him out there. You know, you can tell at this point, almost feel like, he almost feels like he doesn't have a choice. Uh, maybe he doesn't really want to put Will out there at all, but, but he doesn't have much of a choice anymore. So anyway, so we jump right into the next scene, which is, uh, you know, during the examination of the autopsy. Will says that Elise was mounted on antlers, and it also turns out that her liver was removed and put back in. Will says that there's something wrong with the meat. That's why the killer, you know, took the liver out and put it back in, and that the killer is eating the livers and found that Elise had liver cancer. Uh, the next scene is where we first get to to see Hannibal Lecter. Uh, it's a it's a short scene, and all all really constitutes uh, is uh, Hannibal eating. He's eating some meat, which of course makes you wonder exactly what it is. Uh, he then looks into the camera, and the lighting uh, puts most of his face in shadow. And I, I thought it was just a, a brilliantly lit scene. Um, it, the scene's maybe thirty seconds long, uh, if that. But for our first scene, there's no dialogue. And but you get a, a real, a real good sense of, of who Lecter is already. Uh, if you you know, and if you haven't seen this the any of the Hannibal Lecter movies or anything, then it's a, it's a good introductory scene. Uh, we then transition transition into uh, a session uh, that Lecter has with Franklin, who is one of his patients. As his patient exits, uh, Crawford introduces himself. You can tell that Lecter is concerned and appears to be prepping himself to possibly have to kill uh, Jack if necessary. Uh, he thinks that Crawford could be there for him. But Crawford tells Lecter that he was referred by Alana Bloom in the hopes that he might be able to help Will. Um, the next day, Will, Will and Lecter meet for the first time, and Lecter attempts to psychoanalyze Will. Uh, Will doesn't appreciate it and leaves the room. And Lecter tells Crawford that he could help Will see the killer's face, the killer that they're looking for. The next day, there's a, another murder. Uh, a naked female victim is mounted on deer antlers and is um, in the middle of, a, of an empty field. The police give the killer the nickname the Minnesota Shrike. Will says that the killing is a mockery of Elise's and that the killing is distasteful and meant to be so and that the killer is pretty much just a copycat. The lungs are missing, and Will says that the killer is probably eating them. We then switch to Lecter pounding, then frying up a pair of lungs. Elsewhere, we, uh, Will believes that the killer is possibly a man who works at a construction site and has a daughter around 20, 
and who is probably leaving maybe to go off to college and uh, he thinks that the killer cannot bear losing his daughter and that is the uh, one of the reasons why he's murdering these girls the next day Lecter arrives to meet Will offers him sausages sausage and eggs well that's what he says in this scene I'm very careful about what I put into my body which means I end up preparing most meals myself a little protein scramble to start the day some eggs some sausage Delicious, thank you. My pleasure. I would apologize for my analytical ambush, but I know I will soon be apologizing again, and you'll tire of that eventually, so I have to consider using apologies barely. Just keep it professional. Oh, we could socialize like adults. God forbid we become friendly. I don't find you that interesting. You will. Agent Crawford tells me I have a knack for the monsters. I don't think the Shrike killed that girl on the field. The devil is in the details. What didn't your copycat do to the girl in the field? What gave it away? Everything. It's like he had to show me a negative so that I could see the positive. It... That crime scene was practically gift-wrapped. The mathematics of human behavior, all those ugly variables. Some bad math with this Shrike fellow. Are you reconstructing his fantasies? What kind of problems does he have? Uh, he has a few. Ever have any problems, Will? No. Of course you don't. You and I are just alike. Problem free. Nothing about us to feel horrible about. You know, Will? I think Uncle Jack sees you as a fragile little teacup. The finest china used for only special guests. <laughs> How do you see me? I the Alright, so I apologize for playing the scene and its entirety because I know it was a bit of a long one, but I just had to play it because it's such a, a brilliantly written and brilliantly acted scene. Um, everybody's just uh, in top form, which really is, is the entire pilot, to be quite honest with you. The, the quality across the board is, is I, th I believe, at least ridiculous. Um, for this episode um, on so many levels but yeah I, I just love this scene because it really even though it's not the first scene between Lecter and, and Will it's it's a pivotal scene because you can already see Lecter is is toying with Will you know um, he brings him you know this sausage scramble and you know you know that that what's in that uh, that scramble is, is probably the lungs uh, that, that Lecter was pounding in the scene before. So, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. But, but Lecter also starts, you know, throwing out little hints and stuff. I think 
things that that might come back into play for Will maybe down the road. But I I just love it when when Will says that he doesn't find Electra all that interesting, and Electra replies ominously, "You will." And of course, we know at some point, you know, um, the truth will come out. But you know, um, Electra's kind of already toying with him. So anyway, moving on. So they arrive at the construction site where they think the killer uh, may work, and they begin going through files. The lady that works there doesn't really know um, too much about uh, some of the files that they pull out, and specifically Garrett uh, Hobbs, which is uh, someone that sticks out in Will's mind as they go through the files, because there's a contact number, but there's no address. So while loading up the car with files, Lecter takes the opportunity to call Hobbs um, and warn warn him that the the, the, the we try that again. Uh, warning Hobbs that they're closing in, and they uh, they find the address for Hobbs and they go to his residence. And Hobbs opens the door as uh, Will and Lecter are coming toward it, and throws his bleeding wife out of the door. Um, Hobbs has slit her throat, and she falls to the ground, and she's bleeding to death. Um, drawing his gun, Will heads inside. The final confrontation happens in the kitchen with Hobbs holding a knife to his daughter's throat. He slits her throat, but not all the way, before Will shoots him, and shoots him many times, that is. And the scene was, uh, I think, pretty shocking. Uh, the wife being just casually tossed out um, kind of gave you a good idea uh, that when it came down to it at the end that, that Hobbs really viewed her a little more as trash um, because he just tossed her outside she's she's dead pretty much there's no way to stop her bleeding um, she dies right there on the on the front step uh, when it comes to to the girl inside the girl we saw uh, get out of the, the car and wave to someone um, which obviously now is is her um, her father you know that scene with him holding the knife to her throat and you can tell she's terrified and when it comes down to it and he, he slits her throat um, the blood just flies everywhere and it's it's a pretty graphic scene both with the blood flying and, and then uh, Will shooting Garrett Hobbs. He definitely doesn't hold back. The interesting thing is when um, Hobbs is, is kind of slumped down and he looks at Will and he says, I believe he says, um, you see? I, I think that's what he says. I'm not entirely sure not. I'll probably have to go back and, and check that again. But I thought he said, excuse me, do you see? And... Um, and I just feel like that's just another little little piece that's going to play into the, the coming episodes. Um, Selector so arrives in time after um, he slits the, her throat, his daughter's throat, to uh, stop the bleeding, and eventually she's taken away by EMT. Crawford goes to the academy looking for Will, and that's when Alana confronts him. She's she's pissed because uh, he promised her that he wouldn't let Will get too close, and 
now he has. Will heads to the hospital to find Hannibal sleeping in a chair next to Hobbs' daughter, and that's where the episode fades out. End of episode. Looking to contribute to the podcast? Send an MP3 file or email to hungryforhannibal at gmail.com. All right, so let's talk about the episode a little bit. The pilot for for Hannibal is definitely one of the best pilots I've seen in in a while. Probably would make uh, my top ten list of favorite pilots of all time at the moment. The whole episode, and I can say this without you know spoiling anything because it doesn't. It's not really a spoiler. The whole episode and the, and the season in general just oozes quality from the set designs, the writing, the acting. There are some really dedicated and passionate people behind the scenes uh, making this show as good as it is. And the show is probably, it's definitely the most aesthetically gorgeous show on television. I don't know the budget for the episodes, I don't know the budget for the season, but regardless of what the budget is, they, they extract every ounce of that budget and use it to make the show look fantastic. Uh, the the acting is, is simply top-notch. Every single person, every single actor, from uh, the main characters down to uh, the supporting roles and, and, and just small bit roles, um, really seem to bring their A-game. Everybody seems to understand the quality that the script the script brings in and what they're reading is just fantastic um, every scene is important as well which I really like there's no filler uh, we I see that a lot in, in a lot of shows and they, they have the scenes they want and then they just toss in things just to, to make sure the runtime is correct um, but it's not here every scene is utilized to either further the plot or give us some real character development. Despite just this episode, we already get a good sense of who the characters are. We know who Will is, at least in the broad strokes. We know what his gift is. We know that in a way it exacts a terrible price on him. Uh, we get a sense of, uh, of Lecter, of course, and I'll get more to Mads Mikkelsen's uh, portrayal here in a little bit, but we get a good sense of who he is. If you haven't watched uh, Sons of the Lambs, if you haven't read the books, if you haven't seen any of the other movies, uh, and, you, and you're, so you're basically coming into this cold, you know, you already get a good sense of who he is, and we, we get to see some wonderful shading and complexities in the characters in just one episode, which is a testament to the writing and everything as a whole, the whole production. Regarding Mads Mikkelsen's portrayal of Lecter, I think for anybody going into this show, I can't imagine that anybody watching this or going into the show wasn't worried about the portrayal that Mikkelsen would have because for everybody, Lecter is Anthony Hopkins and it's certainly understandable you know, I was. I felt the same way. It's like you know, how could somebody come in and, and you know, basically not just be a lighter version of of, of 
Hopkins, but I gotta I gotta uh, be honest. I was really surprised and really amazed at just how good Mickelson uh, was in this episode. He he has a restrained performance. He hits just the right notes. I came away very very impressed by his portrayal of Lecter in this episode. And um, regarding Lecter, the first scene that we see of Lecter, he's sitting, um, he's cutting a, a slice of meat, and, you know, so the first thing is, uh, you want to know what he's eating. You have, a good, you have a good idea of what he's eating, but you'd like to know exactly what he's eating. And the, the lighting um, is very dramatic, there's classical music in the background, it just sets everything perfectly. You get, you get a lot from that scene. It's only about 15 seconds, uh, roughly 15 seconds, give or take a, a few. Uh, but what it does in just that small time frame is, uh, I think, uh, phenomenal. Um, it's just very well done. Uh, Hugh Dancy, fantastic as well. Um, he has the more showy role uh, for the show, at least at this point, you get to see the things about him that are so difficult in his life. You know, his like I said before, his gift uh, extracts a terrible price, and he's not good with relationships. Uh, you could tell that he'd like to be, uh, but he just he just isn't good uh, with relationships and in, in people. Uh, and, and Lawrence Fishburne, I, I tell you what, I've seen him over the years, I've seen him in some good movies, I've seen him in some TV shows, but i got to say, this is probably the best performance he's given in a long time. And it's not meant to be an insult, but I haven't seen him this engaged in a project or a role in a while. It doesn't mean he hasn't done good work in the past, or even you know, in, in the last five or six years in, in different shows, but... I, just in general, he just does a fantastic job in this episode, and um, he seems to continue to do that as well. The series feels very dreamlike as well. Uh, there is a creativity that if you've seen Pushing Daisies or Wonderfalls, in which uh, Brian Fuller was the uh, producer and or creator, you, you understand. <laughs> I mean, those those shows really had a, a similar quality, and for this it it really uh, it works perfectly. That dreamlike aspect. Uh, there's some there's some symbols and some imagery that you're just not going to find anywhere else on television. I really I really feel that way. Uh, you know, Graham's way. Will Graham's way of stepping into the mindset of a killer. I didn't know how they were exactly going to do that, but the way they did it is a masterstroke. The yellow bars walking across the screen um, allows us to, and then eventually allows us to see him as the killer. It really drives home how deep he gets into the into the people he's they're going after, as well as in a way showing you how deep he gets is also. The thing that costs him the so much so much pain. Um, there's like a sweet seductive scent, really, to him getting too close to that aspect of his personality that he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to get too close to that, and he knows just by being involved, he's doing it. The the show didn't give us a lot of info dumps. 
which a lot of times a pilot will do, and, but just in general, uh, from, from episode to episode, a lot of other shows will get lazy. They'll just dump a bunch of stuff on us, and we got to kind of sift through it. And they don't do that here. They give us the information steadily and as we need it, and that's exactly how it should be. I'm also amazed at the amount of gore <laughs> that's in this show, to be honest. I I didn't know what they were going to do because it's it's Hannibal, it's dealing with Hannibal Lecter, and i got to tell you, the fact that they, they have this level of gore is surprising because it's the kind of thing you would expect to see on uh, Showtime or HBO. Um, you just... Or, you know, I don't... Maybe even... Maybe The Walking Dead. But even then, I don't know. I, I think I've, for a show like that, I, I can't imagine that they've they've done even something similar to the, some of the things that have been done in this episode or uh, in the future. Um, and so that last year was uh, kind of the year of the serial killer shows. You had Dexter wrapping up. You had uh, The Following... And you had Bates Motel. Now, Dexter, well, we know how that went. That was just not good. Um, the following started out strong. I followed it, pun intended, for uh, the first, I think, four episodes, maybe five episodes. And then I realized it was getting ridiculous, and it wasn't long after that. I, I just said, you know what, I, I can't deal with this anymore. This is just stupid. So I left. I just didn't like it anymore, and uh, I've watched Bates Motel, and, and that's a really good show. The The quality in that is uh, really high as well, and so, you know, anybody out there that's looking for another show to get into, definitely check out Bates Motel, because if you like, uh, if you like Dexter when it was great, and you like uh, Hannibal now, Bates Motel is really good because the, the character and the complexity and, and the writing on that show is very, very high. So, uh, basically, this is this was a fantastic episode. Um, I loved every aspect of it. I loved it all. Um, after I watched this episode, I realized, unless they made uh, a really, really big mistake down the road with the show, I was pretty much going to be hooked on it until... You know, like I said, until they made you know big mistakes like the following, uh, the, the level of writing and the acting just just hit rock bottom, or 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 the show got canceled. So that just I think is a testament, really, at least for me, to how good this episode and the show uh, happens to be, in my opinion. So uh, that's pretty much it for for my thoughts on the episode. Again, titled Appetitif. And I guess we'll just uh, jump right into the final thoughts. And so uh, we'll jump into the last part, uh, which is called uh, The Final Word. And we'll do that in a minute. Stay in touch with Michael between episodes by going to the podcast Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash hungry for Hannibal or catch him on Twitter at hungry for Hannibal that's at hungry the number four Hannibal okay and this is the final word 
But before I get into this segment, I figured it'd probably be a good idea to talk a little bit about what this segment is. The final word is basically my chance to take a few minutes at the end of a podcast and tackle any subject. Sometimes it will be uh, for the discussion on something that's happened within the latest episode of Hannibal, uh, but really it's open to uh, whatever I'd like to talk about. But chances are it's probably going to be about you know TV or, or you know some kind of trend that's going on that I like or don't like or whatever. Um, so anyway, so for today, I'd like to talk about the difference between having a long-term plan in place on a TV show versus an organic make it up as you go along kind of plan and the benefits and detriments of each. Now, <clears throat> to give a perfect example um, for this, uh, we could we could tackle Breaking Bad because Breaking Bad did it did it right in the organic uh, make it up as you go along. And then we've got Dexter, which uh, didn't. Uh, so if you look at Breaking Bad, as the series progressed, and if you if you look at um, the plot points as they went along, you could really tell that the writers and the producers and everyone were doing everything they could to make sure that every decision that was made by the characters felt like it was something that those characters would do and in turn created consequences that had long-term ramifications. Now if you listen to the official uh, Breaking Bad podcast, it's a, it's a fantastic podcast and uh, Vince Gilligan is on uh, every episode and so you get a really great insight into how he does what he does and he's completely upfront that they didn't really know exactly where they were going uh, they treated each season um, on its own merits, but they really spent weeks and weeks and weeks weeks just hashing out all the plot points and all the plot details and uh, every possibility um, that could happen um, based on any choice that was made. And that's the right way to do it. And then you have uh, Dexter, which uh, probably operated in a make-it-up-as-you-go-along kind of fashion, too. Except, you really got a sense in the last, you know, three, specifically three seasons or so, that the show didn't really feel like... I mean, it was, a, it was I guess it was a make-it-up-as-you-go-along, but it didn't feel organic. There were too many um, plot holes, too many bad character choices, choices the characters made to service uh, the plot as opposed to something they really would have done in that situation. Uh, and I, I could go on forever, really, but there's a sloppy way to do it organically and then there's a smart way to do it organically. And Breaking Bad is on the one side and uh, Dexter, at least the second half of Dexter's run, really epitomized the, the way you don't do it. And uh, so, and then you have uh, a scenario where you're really planning everything out well ahead of time and for that well, we can pick uh, Hannibal and talk about that uh, obviously Hannibal it's one season in um, but 
Fuller has mentioned uh, in the past that it's supposed to go seven seasons, and he's already laid out a plan uh, in which this is what each season is really going to be about, you know, and I think that the organic way of doing things really gives you some freedom that you simply don't have, but you've got to be more careful. There's a much bigger chance if you do things uh, in an organic way that it could all go wrong. It could still go wrong if you kind of plan everything out, but I think if you at least sketch out the the basic way in which everything's going to play out from the from the pilot, you know, down the line to the to the final episode, you can still have you can still use some organic storytelling to fill in all the gaps and still make it feel, you know, uh, give it a bit, a bit of that flavor to it. But you're kind of saving yourself from getting to a certain point and going, oh boy you know what, I don't really even know what we need to do. What should we do? Uh, and you have, a, you have a chance of really ending your show, if it even gets to the end, on a really sour note. If I had to pick one, because I write books, um, I'm kind of I'm a person who likes to kind of plan everything out. I don't feel like there's as much risk long term. And some people don't. Some people write uh, books and and whatever they do it organically and if it works for them great but if I had to pick one I would go with uh, go with the one where you uh, plan everything out so uh, that's it that's the final word for this episode the, the pilot and uh, I guess we will see you next time bye